Caleb can't read. I'm Jordan Rabel. I'm Caleb Terrence. Do you feel like it's been a fucking week? No. You're feeling okay? I don't know, man. I guess it does kind of meld together. I'm just really tired. Welcome to our most depressed episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really hot. It's it's been hot, man. I'm I, tired. I have the fucking AC on blast in my car, anything. like max AC on in my car when I take a nap. Ooh, look for at lunch. me, I'm Jordan. I drive a car with good AC. Brr, 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 brr. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. It doesn't fucking help. I still wake uh, up fucking sweating. Uh, uh, it's all fucking. Sucks. You got the AC in your room too. It doesn't help. I have the AC in mine as well. <laughs> I've got a fucking fan blowing at me and the AC going, and nothing is helping. It is so hot. Yeah, it sucks. This it, is just the way that dick. we've decided that the world is going to go. There is no going back. This yeah. is it. Yeah. <sighs> it's going to be like this every summer. No, no. It's, it's going to be worse. We're not going to make it to the end of time because we'll all be fucking fried to death. Yeah, yeah. We probably won't even make it to like 2040. <laughs> I mean, like, really... We're probably pretty fucked. I was told that the fucking ice caps were going to melt faster and we were going to live in a water world where at the very least maybe I could swim to lower depths. Yeah, wasn't, wasn't, didn't, didn't somebody at some point say that it would melt the ice caps and then that would bring about like for some a new reason ice a, new, a, a new ice age? That sounds <laughs> wonderful. It sounds like that's what all the politicians are hoping is going to happen. Like, no, no, it'll reverse it. Don't worry. It's fine. Politicians. The ones causing the uh, pollution and the climate change typically oh. by pretending like okay. the coal industry is – uh, fine. The coal fine. industry specifically. <clears throat> I mean, not the, not the oil and gas thing. Why? What's wrong with them? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Let's get into it. Shall we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> Let's hope for happier times with this. Uh, this is not a depressing episode, so that's good. Okay, cool. Are there <laughs> farts in it? There are farts in this, actually. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm in the mood are. for that. Okay, good. Because I can't. I'm I'm in no mood for more Midwestern bullshit. I will fall the fuck asleep. <laughs> I don't give a shit when this gets released. I don't give a goddamn. <laughs> it is medieval. You like medieval shit? I mean, that depends. There's no fucking. Um, that depends on the medieval shit. It, uh, in real life, there were no hobbits. How do you feel about now? Um, it's fine, I guess. <laughs> Look, if Led Zeppelin made a song about it, it's fine. I mean, Hobbits kind of pissed me off, so I mean, I mean, look at him. What's the fucking annoying one that they didn't film? What's his name? Uh, Tom Bombadil. That's the motherfucker. Yeah. I can't read those. That's where Tolkien just like wrote himself in randomly as like fucking some random hot elf wife and then who had magic powers and was a god and then it was never explained or gone back to. You know, I wasn't going to do a thing on Tolkien, but maybe I will now. Yeah. I mean, like, I never, I haven't researched anyone yet that's made himself into a hot wife. I mean, God, can you fucking, like, okay, so, like, Tolkien is, like, the foundation upon, like, so much nerd shit. Can you imagine yeah. how fucked up somebody like that would be if they grew up with everything around us now? I want to see it. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, I've seen what a lot of Darren Aronofsky's movies are like. Hang on, like hang on, Jordan, I got a text. This is important. Uh, we're not doing, come on. What? Come on, just let me read this. Okay. Stop giving me that look. What? Please act like you care. Okay. I need this. Of I need what? the confrontation. Of what? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Is that the segue? I, I fuck. Why not? Hey, man, we blew off almost four minutes. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. That's right, a good cool. chunk of that no, is a, that is professional yeah. podcasting level of bullshittery yeah. before you go into the real thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's get into it, shall we? Dude, you gotta start writing segues. 
I don't can't want to. start just fucking having us banter after not seeing each other. Then Do you like fart jokes? You spend so much then time. Then let me tell you the fucking story, and we'll get to the fart humor. All right. This well, time you have me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Willa Cather was born. No. <laughs> don't you fucking dare. No. <laughs> this is now a Willa Cather podcast. Farts were invented in Nebraska. No. <laughs> John Chaucer. That wasn't fun. Yes, it was. It wasn't good. I'll stop this fucking podcast. That's fine. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> John Chaucer was born sometime around 1312 to his father Robert and his mother Mary, probably in London. The Chaucer name dates back to the French word Chaucier, which for a while was claimed to mean, mean shoemaker, but in reality is the word used for those who make hosieries, underwear. They were underwear makers. Okay. And for what little we know about the Chaucer family, it seems that they were once known as Lay Chaucers before the Lay being taken off. So chances chances are good that the family did originate from France. I was just kind of like wondering, like why in the fuck that would need to be a separate like job from just like a regular tailor. Uh, that's a good question, but uh, you know what? Back then, I would have to guess that like your fucking pants are made of fleece. Or something, no, dude, and you don't want to rub that on your balls. You know what I think it is? Huh. I think it is like a regular tailor has dignity, and then the hosier, <laughs> or whatever the fuck it was. A chaussier. A chaussier. <laughs> I'm a tailor? No, you're a chaussier. <laughs> is someone who's like willing to take measurements of genitals. Oh! <laughs> right? Do you swing to the left or the right, sir? Yeah. No, that's it could be it. Yeah. Will they get paid Just like more, a sack or, measurer. Will they get paid more or less, do you think? I don't know, man. I don't know what the demand mm. for this is. I just buy my fucking underwear in like a bulk pack. <laughs> okay? It just says medium Hanes. All right? And I just fucking... It's fine. Cheaper, then. Cheaper. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, either way, the Chaucer family was fairly well off. More than what most people would be able to claim in 14th century England. John's grandfather owned and operated a tavern where presumably his father Robert got into the art of winemaking. And this wasn't some unobtainable step to make. There had been plenty of winemakers down the Chaucer line. And John, like his father before him, went into the winemaking business as well. Now, it wasn't just owning the tavern that leads us to believe that the Chaucer family was affluent. We know they owned a bit of property, too. We know this because it was the motivation for John's kidnapping when he was 12 years old. In 1324, John was kidnapped by his aunt with the express interest in marrying him off to her daughter, his cousin. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. You're going to marry your cousin. Ha! <laughs> Sweet. I mean, no. Wait. Is that okay right now? What time period is this? It is unfortunately the norm. <laughs> okay. She was, of Wait, course... Wait, the kidnapping or the marrying your cousin? You know, probably fucking both. Okay. <laughs> As well as the fucking underwear winemaking. She was, of course, caught by the police. Because even if it's 1324, kidnapping is still illegal. And it was here in court that we have the documents to say that she wanted John to marry in the family to keep the property in her name. She was fined according to her earnings, leaving her with a bill of $250. What is today about 200000 which was quite the high sum back then. 
you have to imagine cost of living wasn't like, oh, two hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's not that bad. It's like, no, 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 two hundred and fifty dollars you could retire off of. <laughs> Apparently, incestuous grandchildren was not, uh, you know, too high a price to pay for it. So it must have been a hefty, <laughs> a hefty amount. I am willing to pay this price. <laughs> Jesus fuck. Okay, man. Like, you've seen the royals, right? Let's <laughs> just saying, like, <laughs> <laughs> no finer warts. Well, sometime around thirteen forty, when John was around twenty eight. He married a woman named Agnes Copton. She herself came from a family of good standing and owned 24 shops around London that she got in an inheritance from a wealthy uncle. Fuck, who got married? Uh, the kid who got kidnapped. Okay, so he didn't get He's, married to the cousin? No, he he got married at 28 and is fine now. And supposedly PTSD. PTSD okay. was not a thing, so it's fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish PTSD wasn't a thing. <laughs> it's not, if you believe in yourself. Thanks, man. <laughs> Now, as I mentioned before, the records of the Chaucer family are somewhat incomplete. And because of this, we don't know how many kids John and Agnes had, but we do know of their most important. Born sometime in 1343. (laughs) That's how they referenced it back then, too. (laughs) Alphabetically? No. (laughs) The best one. (laughs) Born sometime in 1343. And the subject of today's episode, Geoffrey Chaucer. I don't know this. All right. That's fine. Okay. Now, the early life of Jeffrey Chaucer is almost non-existent. <laughs> like I said that, like that wasn't expected. I mean, uh, eh. <laughs> Shit, is this embarrassing that I don't know this? No, not, not Is it one of those? Quite. No, not really. Okay. No. All right. So <laughs> the early life of Jeffrey Chaucer is almost non-existent, as is common for authors we've talked about in previous episodes from around this time. Basically, if there wasn't a reason for them to be on public record, then they had no history. But we do get a bit of Jeffrey's early background from his father, John, since he was a well-established vintner at this point. Winemaker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John eventually became a by-appointment-only type of winemaker for nobles, landing him clients such as the Ulster House, a family of Irish nobility. In 1357, when Geoffrey was 14, John's connections with the Royal Ulster House got his son a job as a page, there for Elizabeth de Berg, the Countess of Ulster, where his job was to essentially take notes and be a record keeper. And it's here that we have the first mentions of Geoffrey himself, in the file that he would keep uh, called the Chaucer Life Records. And this occupation as a page was often given uh, as a sort of entry-level position into knighthood, believe it or not. Like, you would just start off as a page and learn how things are kind of done in a castle before they just gave you a fucking badge and gun. So, I mean, hey. <laughs> Sick. Yeah. From wine? Yeah. No, for being, from being a page. Oh. Like, just taking notes and shit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, why not? But whether it was because Jeffrey just didn't have what it took to take the next step into becoming a knight, or he was just a great scribe and the family didn't want to lose him, Jeffrey never made it past playing stenographer for royalty. But it was here at the Ulster House that he met Philippa Pan, the Countess of Ulster's lady-in-waiting. Which is a weird title, but honestly, it meant that you were a secretary. Cool, and they were just friends, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, anyway... Philippa was only a couple of years younger than Chaucer, and it looks like she got into working for royalty in much the same way that he did. Her father, Payne de Roy, was a knight and managed to hand his daughter's resume off to the right people and get her hired. 
And because uh, while her original name was Philippa de Roe after her father, she became known as Philippa Pan because she started out as a kitchen worker. So the royalty there just decided it was easier to remember who she was if they got to name her after a kitchen appliance. <laughs> it's not that hard. You could also just use the first name. Like, I'm sure that'd be better. <laughs> like, like, what the fuck? KitchenAid! It's, it's fucking... Is there, like, another Philippa here? No. You're just that fucking boring. <laughs> like... Pan wench. No! <laughs> Just a few years. Fine, then Philippa Pan it is. If you're going to complain about that one. Like. <coughs> just a few years after. Yeah, it's just kind of like how my parents got me to eat vegetables. They're like, you like could the either. They're like, you could either eat your vegetables or we beat you. Oh, you don't want to get beaten? Just fucking eat your veggies. You know? Do you need to talk later? <laughs> that seemed like it really came out of nowhere and didn't have anything to do with what's going on. Is the heat getting to It is getting to you. No, my, my tears are. I mean, my eyes are just sweating. It's fine. Okay, you're just high, right? I wish. Just a few years after being in the courts of royalty, Geoffrey Chaucer became the official tagalong for the Countess of Ulster's husband, Lionel of Antwerp, first Duke of Clarence. Now, the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> Clarence. <laughs> what? I don't know. Fucking why. what? I don't know why. It just dawned on me that, like, that's the lamest fucking thing to name your kid. It's like one of the worst things. Like, what's his name? Clarence. And it's like, ah, yes, the Duke of Keith. Like, <laughs> it just sucks. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you're still a Duke. That's true. Ah, uh, the Dukey of Keith. Stop. No. <laughs> I would take a much lamer name than I already have, and that's saying something. <laughs> to just, like, have money. So it can't that's get fine. much worse for you. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I'll take less. Legally, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> can't do that. No, the Hundred Years' War fought between England and France. Whoa. What? Oh, don't worry. Yeah. No, there's that, a, there's that was a abrupt. I, What yeah. the fuck, man? Were you <laughs> Look, drunk when you wrote this? You're only supposed to drink when we do it. Maybe. I wrote this at work. Now, the Hundred Years' don't War. Don't say that on the fucking podcast, you idiot. For the last time. They're going to find my desk whiskey. <laughs> now, the Hundred Years' War. Fought between. No, don't say that you write it at work on the podcast. Oh, okay. Just what drinking if someone... at work is fine, though. I mean, if you don't, I mean, honestly, if you get away with it, then yes, anything's fine if you get away with it. I, I mean, read it during lunch when I'm not taking naps. It's fine. Okay, don't, why do you have to? Wink. Huh? You're a fucking idiot, wink. you know that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, now listen to me. The Hundred Years' War, fought between England and France for 116 years, actually, was started in 1337 before Geoffrey was even born. But with the war still in its early stages, Lionel of Antwerp, was called to duty in Reims, France, and the young Chaucer was forced to come along. Now, what would later become known as the Reims campaign was weird. Basically, what? <laughs> I just think it's funny. What? Like, back in the day, like, if they just needed people, you could be like, I have literally no idea how to fight at all, and they're like, that's fine. <laughs> like, no, you could just die. <laughs> like, you think that we don't do that now? <laughs> Well, we at least try to teach him first. I can't even smoke yet. Come here, seventeen-year-old, and pay your way through college. Hey, don't <laughs> fucking drink when you get back. <laughs> That's like, against the law. I'm happy you killed that family. Well, basically, <laughs> King Edward the Third of England thought that if he attacked the fortified city of Reims, France, he could get King Charles V of France to crown Edward as the new ruler of France. 
or if he killed King Charles, that there wouldn't just be like a long fucking line of succession down the family tree like there is for him. Just basically, I'm going to go kill him or make him give me the crown and that's it. Well, either way, King Edward's attempt at fighting was just really pitiful. King Charles had seen that the war had been going on for like the last 30 years and just wanted it to end. So instead of reciprocating King Edward's attempts at a fight, King Charles just hung out in his fortress while King Edward's army just ran up and smacked the walls for a bit. He's like, dude, this has been 30 years. You think I give a fuck they about literally, a siege? They literally did it like Mighty Python and the Holy Grail. They literally like ran up to the walls and were like, ah, yeah, and they're just watching like, no, <laughs> why? <laughs> And when like, look, man, I've got a little farm in here. This problem is solved. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, thirst them out. Oh, there's a there's rain coming. And when they got tired, the English army decided to just go. Did you say thirst them out? <laughs> <laughs> well, thirst them out. <laughs> Bring your biggest bootied men. Your <laughs> <laughs> thickest men. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> no, man. What? I don't know. You could have left it there. You know. Getting really sick of your attitude. I'm getting really sick of you fucking not finishing this shit up because I'm fucking tired. All right? So. You know what? I'm getting sick of coming over and doing this. So why don't you mind your fucking P's and Q's because I don't live down the street from you anymore, you piece of shit. All right? This takes it out of me. (laughs) Like. We just get all angry during the summer and shit. Just like our our summer uh, seasons are the ones where we're just like, I'll fucking kill you. All right, I will drive down to your house, kill your roommate and their dog, Just, and I will kill you. We don't have a dog. <laughs> My life would be better if I had a dog. <laughs> of course, I don't have, have a, a fucking dog. <laughs> Just have two roommates. It's awesome. Okay, let's pause. Speaking of the... We need to open that fuck. So, when the English army got tired, they decided to just go ransack a nearby town instead. But as it would turn out, the French peasants are a lot tougher. Than you guys want to just go ones. raid the town? <laughs> yeah, basically. But the the French peasants are a lot tougher than the English ones, so they actually fought back. And the English army tried to run away back to their ships, but then a storm came and killed a bunch of them. <laughs> the fucking French, man! <laughs> Can't blame the weather on the French. Watch me, French workers. <laughs> like- so basically, King Charles not only defended his castle successfully, but he also managed to wipe out the English forces without so much as lifting a finger. Well, with the English aggressors lying injured on the beach, King Charles just, like, picked them up and said, like, can we please stop fighting now? And King Edward was like, I'm not leaving until you give me something to show that I won. So even though he was a complete loser in this fight, King Charles still gave him some stuff to King Edward just to, like, make him feel better. I guess probably like some, whatever it takes for you to fuck off. Well, it probably was to, to make a peace treaty come along easier. Cause I mean, they didn't know that the war was going to go on for 116 years and they're 30 years in and they're just like, please stop. But, uh, but the French did still ransom the English nobel nobility stuck there because oh, I mean, yeah. why, why wouldn't they? And King Edward personally paid $16. You have to give me something. To say that I won. Well, okay, I'm not going to give you any of the captives. That's fine. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> Make up an award. Well, you just won it. Yay! <laughs> and uh, so King Edward personally paid $16 for Chaucer's ransom just to get him back. What would today be almost twelve grand? Now, more than Wait. likely... Huh? I'm sorry. I had a very dumb question. I would like to move on without addressing it. Oh, all right. Okay. I mean, you got an opportunity. No, no. Okay. 
Thank you. Now, more than likely, Chaucer picked up a few books while he was still a captive in France and found a love of poetry. We don't know all of Chaucer's influences when it came to his writing, but we're pretty sure of this one because a title that was of major importance to him was Le Roman de la Rose, or The Romance of the Rose, which was just a long poem that dealt with the gods of love and shit like that. But for a long time, it was actually thought that Chaucer was the original author to this story. Instead, he was just the first to translate it from French sometime around 1360. He saw the beauty in its words and thought the style was something that could be very useful to English poetry. You see, things like stories and poems were only written in French and Latin back in the day, and you wouldn't even touch English unless it was for something shitty like taxes or a wanted poster or something. English was very much a peasant language. But Chaucer saw the attractiveness in The Romance of the Rose and wanted more people to know about it, so he helped circulate it throughout England. As it would turn out, the English translation was so close to the original text and so popular that later scholars figured it was the French that translated it from English, but that wasn't the case. After his ransom, Chaucer definitely had an easier time of things, not joining kings on the battlefield, but instead touring with them to other countries for more diplomatic meetings. But in 1363, Chaucer's employer, the Countess of Ulster, passed away. I don't know why, but my guess is because it was 1363. Anyway, Chaucer, as well as Philippa Pan, were sent to work for Philippa of Hainault, the Queen of England herself. Sometime during their stay... I'm going to fucking laugh my ass off if somebody ever fact-checks your pronunciation on shit. Yeah, you know what? So the way that Jeffrey is pronounced, I don't know if that's supposed to be Joffrey, and I forgot to look it up. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to call him Jeffrey, though. I think it's funnier. Mm. (laughs) Reasons to appreciate your podcast being unpopular. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometime during their stay, Jeffrey Chaucer and Philippa Pan married. Probably sometime in 1366, the same year that his father John (laughs) Philippa Pan. (laughs) What? (laughs) This is really good. At least she gets to change her last name now. (laughs) I mean, no longer are are you fucking cookie cutter. Hey, Philippa Pan. (laughs) (laughs) So shitty. (laughs) It wasn't long before Chaucer. Why do you need to punch down? You're already rich. (laughs) (laughs) It's funnier. (laughs) Fucking icing on top. It wasn't long before Chaucer became what was called a valet de chambre, what was basically a butler, but you also had to travel a lot to do business on behalf of your employer. For Chaucer, he became a valet de chambre on June 20th, 1367, when he was about 24 years old. And sometime around here in 1367 is believed to be when Philippa and Geoffrey had a son, Thomas. The exact number of Chaucer kids is unknown. Uh, though it's believed that they had, quote, two sons and two daughters, though I don't know where that rumor originate, originated. Supposedly it was from a poem he made, but no one can really verify. And speaking of rumors, it was said that one of these kids was fathered by English Prince John of Gaunt, though again, rumor. Wait, wait. Completely unfounded. Oh. I, I mean, maybe. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's actually believed that since being a scholar on Chaucer puts you among the literary elite, like if you studied John Milton or James Joyce, that someone started this rumor just so that they would know something that no one else did. Mm. I mean, honestly, what better way? About a year later, a noblewoman by the name of Blanche of Lancaster passed away from the plague. 
and her husband, the aforementioned English prince John of Gaunt, requested of Chaucer to write something beautiful for him to remember her by. Well, Chaucer delivered. He wrote his first original work, called The Book of the Duchess, soon after Blanche's death. And from what I could tell, it's a very sweet poem about the different gods from, like, Grecian times relenting about their lost loves and shit. Very sweet, but ultimately not what Chaucer would be known for. Over the course of the next ten years, Chaucer would often make his way to mainland Europe on the behalf of the king's business, specifically Italy. Now, what I tell you next is unsubstantiated, but rumor has it that on one of these trips, Chaucer ran into either the poets Boccaccio or Petrarch, two of Italy's most well-known surviving authors at that time. And while I would agree that Chaucer found influence with both these guys, there's no proof to say that they ever actually met. For instance, Sigmund Freud, Joseph Stalin, Leon Trotsky, and fucking Hitler all lived in Vienna at the same time and frequented the same coffee shop, but there is no evidence whatsoever that any of them met at any given time. But the important thing here is that Chaucer found much influence in the Italian contemporaries regardless, most of all in their cynical, fart-laden humor. Mm. Okay, here we go. <laughs> you were losing me. You were losing me. I'm not going to lie. Don't worry. It's going to get there. It's going to get there. Fucking. Ugh. All right. And it's believed that. Come on. Let's go. I'm fucking here. I'm ready. (laughs) It's believed that Chaucer's early works were commissioned by royalty, but unfortunately have not survived the times. Wait, the royalty commissioned fart work? Um, We don't know, but uh, probably. Mm. It would make sense because for some reason in 1374, Chaucer was. Just in French or Italian, so it was classic. (laughs) Yeah. None of that English peasant fart humor. Avant les putes. <laughs> In 1374, Chaucer was rewarded, quote, a gallon of wine daily for the rest of his life by King Edward III. Fucking sick. <laughs> like, that was part of written record. And it's believed that Chaucer probably wrote him some dirty limericks and was quite good at it. And at this point, as mentioned before, since Chaucer is only known best as the king's liaison, There's no mention of him again for about the next 10 years. But on May 4th, 1380, Chaucer is involved in a case against a woman named Cecilia Champagne for the crime of, quote, raptus. Uh, Now, this is a very general term. Okay, I'm going to get a little drink here first. (laughs) Go on. Go on. Please. You see. This is Jordan Rabel explaining what he just said. Now, you see, a woman was considered property, and therefore... You're not doing well. (laughs) If you damaged that property in any way, whether it's battery... This is getting so much worse. Kidnapping, or yes, even rape, that was considered raptus. Well, being employed by the king, Chaucer managed to pay his fine for the damage and go about his merry way quite easily. Now, we don't know exactly which crime it was. I don't know exactly how to explain how fucked up that is. Right? Yeah. Fuck. God damn. I read that. I was like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) like, oh my God, dude. That's. (laughs) Just find some woman, like, oh my God, someone's damaged this property. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Like, I read it and I was like, I know that shit happened. But to give it an actual term, too, like, 
damaged goods. Like, no, no, no. It's Raptus because she's still a person. Just, eh, you know. Hey, man, you <laughs> fucked up. She was married. Well, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. It's, uh, yeah, she she was somebody's property and he oh, did something. Okay. Stop I, look, saying it. What? what? Stop <laughs> saying it. I don't like it. It's weird. <laughs> so, whatever he did that was under this umbrella term of Raptus, he did. <laughs> But it's safe to assume it was probably rape. I mean, what I, I really can't. I mean, why don't we just continue else? on thinking that like <laughs> he was just drunk and she was walking past him in the bar and he thought it'd be really funny to trip her? Could be. Yeah. Why not that? Because uh, rape is a lot more likely. Anyway, oh. now three years before these charges in 1377, and then she got like she sprained her wrist. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good job. Investigative skills. Yeah. That's good. Now, three years before these charges of Raptus in 1377... I don't like the word either. <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> King Richard III passed away, and his grandson, 10-year-old Richard II, took control. I know that may seem weird that Richard III passes on and Richard II is only 10, but it's because they were named after different Richards. Anyway. I feel like they would... That's really stupid. It, it's really fucking stupid. You should specify. <laughs> no, man, they're royalty. It's dumb as fuck. They don't give it. it who cares? Oh, yeah, they're all <laughs> they're fucking... All fucking stupid. Yeah, no. <laughs> anyway, there, uh, there were, of course, some reservations about a 10-year-old taking charge. Mostly it was that as... He was 10? Uh, well, as any child would, King Richard II, the kid, he had his favorites. And those favorites quickly rose to power regardless of how much work they put like that in. That kid isn't even master of his own dick yet. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Literally like, not a hair on that child. Not a hair. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the people who were actually doing all the work were being left with nothing. But that wasn't an issue to Chaucer because he was among those who were King Richard's favorites. Instead, he was pissed off that his daily ration of a gallon of wine was taken away from him with the previous king's death. Well, I imagine after having a gallon of wine every day for, you know, however long, it would be kind of involuntary. <laughs> He's fucking 300 off. pounds. In it. <laughs> 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 but he the withdrawal did. would be pretty fucking serious, man. And no doctor back then is going to tell you what to do. They're just going to be like, shit, get him more wine. <laughs> leeches. <laughs> leeches and wine, now. <laughs> Drink the leeches. But he did still enjoy the perks that the new king gave him. Chaucer was paid extra for every day he had to sit in court, specifically, beside King Richard. And when Parliament forced King Richard to sit through 71 days of debate about how he was picking favorites, Chaucer raked up quite the sum. But it's not like things ended well for everyone that got picked as one of King Richard's favorites. By the end of those court hearings, most of them were fucking hanged. Which I feel is a little unfair to these dudes that didn't really have a say in whether or not the king liked them. I know, right? Like <laughs> they should have expected. Like, I mean, I mean, come on, like a more reasonable response from a fucking ten-year-old. No, like, no, I don't really not. know he's how not the, he's not the one that passed down the judgment. That that was by like a, a court order with like a judge and shit. Although I wouldn't doubt that he was like, King, what do you want to see? Make him poke themselves. Like, no, we can't. Can't. I mean, we all do that anyway. No, that's really it's undignified. No, we're gonna kill him. <laughs> Actually, they're going to fucking hang the shit out of them. Cool. <laughs> They'll poop their pants when they die. That's a thing. <laughs> Bring me new chassiers. <laughs> it was probably seen as manipulation on their part, and that's why they got hung. Uh, and even though Chaucer was a favorite and was actively reaping the benefits, he still managed to escape with his head intact. 
Chaucer's wife, Philippa, probably died around 10 years later, after almost 20 years of marriage to Joffrey, because there is no more record of her past 1387. <clears throat> around 1388, Chaucer wrote one of his first widely produced works, The Legend of Good Women. <coughs> and it sounds like a snide cut at women, but it's actually a collection of 10 poems based on women that Chaucer found admirable, such as Cleopatra or Queen Dido from uh, the, the Aeneid. That was the woman who got mad about Aeneas leaving, so she stabbed herself and threw herself into a fire. Oh. Now, <laughs> first time you're hearing that. I'm getting some mixed signals about whether this is about good women. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> That's true. I don't know, man. Like, How I, admirable I, of her to just do what needed to be done. Just do it. I don't like your face right now. <laughs> now, although I haven't read it, it does sound kind of interesting, partly because of its jab at women being treated like objects, which is funny given his conviction in Raptus. But what this small collection of poems did was give 10 good examples of women who were respectable, even though some of them were, yes, fictional. But the one thing that has historians mm -hmm. scratching their heads is that there are two prologues to this book, and they're near identical. It's thought that maybe one of them was thought to be lost for a second, but then the printer had it, and then when Chaucer gave him another one, he just fucking ran them both. I don't know. Well, after this, Chaucer transferred as a page to the clerk of the king's works from the years of 1389 to 1391. This was basically the lead foreman on all special building projects underseen by the king. So if there was a church being built or an official court of some kind, Chaucer was the guy in charge of overseeing its construction. However, he didn't actually do a whole lot while he was appointed this position. He did some repairs to Westminster and helped a little in the building of the wharf at the Tower of London, but those were really his only major accomplishments. There's a stained glass window at Westminster's called the Poet's Corner that memorializes Chaucer for his work, and that's kind of it in regards to his commemorations. But while being a clerk of the King's Works would usually be the kind of job you retire in, I mean, imagine the fucking benefits, Chaucer quit after his second year. Because in September of 1390, he got fucking jumped while on his way to the inner city office. <laughs> And that's a stupid reason to quit a job. That's come on. Like you could probably find those guys and get them hanged. And even if you find the wrong guys, just say yeah, it's them and they'll hang them anyway. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, really, whoa, how big of an inconvenience is getting jumped like back then? What are they going to do? Take your ID? Like what? The, like really? Like fuck! Now I got to go to the DMV. Like what my are you? Best Chaucer's. <laughs> fuck! I got to get my phone. I got to do all the Google fucking verification horse shit. Not that big of a fucking deal. I just don't carry that much on you. Mm. That's fair. I Fucking keep your shit at your house. Have a have a dog or two. I wonder how much like money you actually carried around on a day to day basis. Not that fucking much. I wouldn't think so. No way. That no. would be so fucking. It stupid. would be stupid. Yeah. He doesn't seem like the kind of dude who is super smart either, though. I don't know. Well, maybe he was. I don't know. Fuck it. We know nothing about him. I'm just gonna say he was dumb as shit. Okay. And he soon retired after from that position. After that, he worked as a forester for uh, Petherton Park, basically a park ranger. Until his death nine years later. Were they had parks back then? Yeah, right? Isn't that weird? I thought they didn't isn't have public just, land back yeah, then. Yeah, isn't that like, someone's just fucking lawn? You know? <laughs> like, like, I thought that was just a place you weren't allowed to hunt. <laughs> well, I, I doubt that too, honestly. <laughs> they probably killed a lot of yeah, shit. Yeah, they get caught, park. but I mean, good luck catching me. Like, fuck off. I'm going to get the rabbits. <laughs> that sounds like, you, uh, like you've done that. What? <laughs> Throughout the remaining years of his life, 
Jeffrey Chaucer largely relied on the annual income paid by the king of 20 pounds, about $18,000 today. <coughs> but when King Charles II was overthrown in 1399, Chaucer managed to keep his pension with the new king, Henry IV, at least for a little while. You see, with this new, this new king came a new cabinet of politicians. So all records of Chaucer cease on June 5th, 1400. Wait, they just changed everything over as soon as they got a new guy in? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, have you not seen people being over? But that's wild. I can't imagine that even working. <laughs> Thank God we have it the way it is now. All of his texts got deleted, too. It was weird. Just coincidentally. <laughs> the last record we have of him is when he was given his last check to pay off his duty to the crown. This matter in the court's document titled, The Complaint of Chaucer to His Purse. Now, unfortunately... Since the work of Chaucer is so fucking old, it means that most of his works are up for debate on whether or not he actually authored them. This includes a manual on how to set up scientific equipment and an epic poem, which is the origin of the phrase, all good things must come to an end. But the one work we know for a fact is by Geoffrey Chaucer is the one that he wrote for the last 13 years of his life, sometime around the same period as his wife Philippa's passing. This book is the reason that English became... Somewhere around in that 13-year period. <laughs> <You're> fucking... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, that's a pretty good stretch of time for them to narrow down, honestly. I mean, 13 years for back then? Yeah. This book is the reason that English became a mainstream language, in the same sense as what Dante's The Divine Comedy did for Italian and what Cervantes's Don Quixote did for Spanish. This is, of course, The Canterbury Tales. The Canterbury Tales. Have you heard of that? Uh, fucking ringing a bell, bud. It was in The Hobbit. No. <laughs> I was like, whoa, dude, I was about to shoot myself in the fucking mouth if I didn't know that. <laughs> On page 94, of course. Nice little fucking chuckle, though. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Quote, When in April the sweet showers fall and pierce the drought... Of March to the Root and all. The veins are bathed in liquor of such power. I feel like I've seen like a show titled this on Netflix and then quickly gone past it. <laughs> I feel like that's why it's in my head somewhere. As brings about the engendering of the flower. What? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. I don't even remember what I just said. <laughs> just keep going. It's okay. <clears throat> the narrator begins our story with an invocation of spring. Sometime, uh, something that you may remember as a thing that the Italians such as Dante would do to begin their tales, or even older, when Virgil or Homer would invoke the muses. This is a, a little hint as Italian influences. Now, every year... <laughs> Pick a pube out of your mouth there? Uh, yeah, but it was a beard hair, luckily, this time. Okay. Now, every year, devout Christians... I don't see any black beard hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's a curly one. That's weird. Now, every year, devout Christians walk to the town of Canterbury, where they thank the relics of St. Thomas Becket for his martyrdom. The narrator himself is on one such journey and has chosen to stay at the Tabard Inn for his night's rest, along with 29 other pilgrims. The narrator is granted to be among their group, making him the 30th member. To pass their time on the road, and this is the entire book, by the way, the narrator asks each member of the group to share a story. We begin with the tale given by the knight and his squire, who just so happens to be the knight's own son, along with their yeoman which when I looked it up is just another word for a, a servant, but a servant belonging to someone of nobility. There were so many fucking peasants in old England that they had to make up new words based on who they belonged to. Oh. Anyway, 
The knight is on a journey to Canterbury simply because he feels it is his duty to do so. He doesn't practice virtue and chivalry because he's a knight. He's a knight because it's bomb as shit. He thinks going to Canterbury is cool as hell, and although he only speaks in a very old English manner, very Don Quixote-like, you get the sense that he's doing this all for clout. The knight's son, the squire, on the other hand, does everything only out of love. He speaks about nothing but love. He can't sleep at night because all he thinks of is love. The knight's son is also annoying. <laughs> he even has flowers embroidered into his tunic. He's completely taken with the fact that a part of knight's code of honor is to write poetry and think about love, and it's because of this that he wishes to be a knight, complete opposite of his father. The prioress is a yeah, nun. We got it, man. <laughs> the prioress is a nun who holds her head up high, speaks softly, and speaks French whenever oh. she can. She's a prioress. You didn't mention her before. Why? Yeah, she's one of the members of the group. Oh, okay. I'm just saying. All right. She speaks softly, speaks French. You said something about a human, and then you started oh. describing a nun. Yeah. What? This doesn't <laughs> seem structured well. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> the prioress is a nun who holds her head up high, speaks softly, and speaks French whenever she can to show her status. Though, as the narrator mentions, she still has a heavy English accent whenever she tries to speak it. She's clearly been in the presence of nobles for so long that she believes herself to be one. She's also very pretty, he says, despite her enormous forehead. The mo- <laughs> Why? Why is that there? I don't know. It's very specific. <laughs> the monk lives by the book, very religious, of course, except when he doesn't want to be. Basically, the church has forbid ungodly acts for the people in the priory, such as hunting, but the monk disagrees with the church on this specific matter, so he doesn't anyway. Shit like that. Similarly is the friar, who has dedicated his life to Christ in the form of only living off of scraps. He will only live by means of begging for money and food. However, when people come to him for penance, the wealthy learn that the friar will only give a small price to pay for their sins for those that donate a large amount of money. So although he is only living off of scraps, technically, he's dressed in the fanciest fucking clothes that money can buy. This is quite the grift. Yeah. I told you, man. We just got to do a religious grift and we're fucking millionaires. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even want that. I just want no, like, I know, a house. No, I know. We're not that bad of people. God. It's too easy and it sucks. <laughs> it's bad, dude. Jordan, we just need some snakes. <laughs> you can do that. I know you're afraid of them. Snakes. I don't want to do it. <laughs> Anyway, the, the whole fucking crew is like this. Everyone is basically a satirical version of their own occupation. So we start with the knight's tale. He tells the town of two men, Arcity and Palamon, cousins who fought on the battlefield before becoming wounded and taken as prisoners of war. They alone are sentenced to a life of imprisonment, doomed to spend the rest of their days in a dungeon tower. But one morning, they see a beautiful woman named Emily picking flowers by their prison. At first, the two cousins squabble over her affection before realizing that their fighting is futile, as no, neither one of them will ever be able to speak to Your her. fighting is futile. There is no calling dibsies. Fuck off. <laughs> I mean, technically, you did see her first. I mean, I'm No, just there's saying. no dibsies. No, 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 I'm just saying. Look. I don't I, know how I'm many not, friends I have to, to explain this look, to. Look, I'm not... I'm, I, 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 look. Okay. <sighs> I can't believe I need to explain this to you again. But an object is technically finders keepers. God. No, no, there is no dibsies. 
<laughs> I don't care. For that time period, there may have been. Like, legally, I did see her first. Legally, I picked her up. <laughs> yes, she was walking home, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> there is no dibsies. I don't care how much if you want there out, to be dibsies. If she's out by the curb, technically, I'm allowed to take it. <laughs> God, the fucking Fuck medieval you, times are the worst. <laughs> However, a man who is both a friend to Arcity and the duke in charge of their imprisonment pleads on behalf of the one cousin. He doesn't know Palamon, so he could go screw. But won't you please release my good friend Arcity? Well, the man in charge reluctantly agrees, but orders Arcity to never enter his city again. So Arcity, while free, may never look upon Emily's face again, while Palamon, imprisoned, still gets to see her every morning. So the knight asks, who's in a worse position, Arcity or Palamon? Well, the dude in prison. Look. Because <laughs> he's in fucking prison. <laughs> look, man, I'm trying to help you out here for a fucking philosophy class, all right? I'm just, look. Who's in a worse position, the man who's obsessing about a strange woman he's never talked to in a cell, or a man who's not in prison doing that? Uh, let me. Who put knows? It, let me put it to you. Uh, he's fucking wild. Let me let me give it to you another way. Who's in a worse position, a man who now has to go uh, apply for several different mall jobs or a man who gets three hots in a cot and spank material? What are you fucking talking about? I'm just saying. One dude has got it, I mean, for life. What yeah, do you mean but, mall jobs? This is not a fucking that's, – that's not malls a good argument. Existed. No, they didn't. Malls existed. No, fucking – no, no, no. Idiot. You could go do literally any job and get housing back then. Fuck off. <laughs> Apparently you what, could. A mud ju- hut? Apparently you could just tell people you were a friar and just get money. Like so, like oh, that's I don't even want to fucking. I'm sure like, you probably could. Yeah. How hard? Well, like, what the fuck are the qualifications <laughs> for that? You know what? I bet the qualifications were just like being cool with the dudes who did that. That's it. A hundred percent. Why are you naked? Are you poor? No, I gave up everything for Christ. Wow. Here's a hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, seven years later. Our city has a dream, a vision that he must return to the city for Emily's hand in marriage. Now, over the course of these seven years, our city has become weak, gaunt from lovesickness. He figures with his changed looks that he'd be able to sneak into the city under an assumed name to get close to her. Well, it why, works. Why it does works. he have to sneak in? What? It works. I don't understand. Well, he's he was told he never is allowed back in the city again. Okay. So, I mean, he looks different now because he's got fucking old man looking syndrome. Yeah, exactly. Once again, back to this. No ideas. So, who the fuck? <laughs> like, what? Like. Ooh. Is that the same? That's the birthmark on his ass that I saw seven years ago. I know that. Damn it. Birthmark. I should have worn pants. <laughs> why did I come in here with it? Why did I come here like Pooh Bear again? I gave it all up for Christ. No, it's not going to work this time. You son of a bitch, <laughs> you owe me $100. <laughs> well, creepily, he ends up taking a position as some sort of scribe within her very household. But even so, he rarely gets to see her. This is like multiple year creepery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really sad when you read a fucking news article every now and then that is this, where it's just like, man, socks, ex-girlfriend from high school. And it's like, why? Move on. Well, Arcity wanders the woods one day, openly lamenting his bad luck. Well, who should he come across but his cousin Palamon, who, after seven years, has managed to escape his imprisonment and heard Arcity openly bitching in the wilderness. Well, the two get into a huge row and just start beating on each other. And who else should happen to be in the woods but the duke in charge of their imprisonment? And he just so happens to be out with his court of people for a good old woods jaunt. And among them is Emily, 
She's the Duke's sister-in-law. Well, the Duke luckily has no idea who these two guys are. All he sees are these two decrepit old fucks just beating the shit out of each other. So he's like, hey, what's the deal? And for some reason, Arcity and Palamon think the best course of action is to angrily come clean about everything. They're just like, we're those two guys you imprisoned in the tower, and we both want to rail this chick, and we're fighting about it. And the Duke is so overwhelmed with anger that... <laughs> <laughs> I like the Duke. <laughs> Why wouldn't you be fucking pissed? <laughs> with every word, just like... <laughs> He's so overwhelmed with anger that he approaches to kill them both on the spot, but there's ladies in his entourage, so he decides not to. So what the Duke there's decides... ladies everywhere, dumbass. <laughs> well, so what the Duke decides is this. In one year's time, and frankly, I kind of like this better, in one year's time, both Arcity and Palamon will return to this very spot to fight to the death with an army of a hundred men each. The winner will win Emily's hand in marriage. Hey! No. <laughs> no thoughts about what Emily thinks of this. I don't know. Maybe she thought it was funny. <laughs> They're both going to die. <laughs> a year later, a stadium has been built with three temples. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. They're getting the whole fucking town in on this shit. With three temples built for the gods outside the gates. One to Venus, the goddess of love. One to Mars, the god of war. And one to Diana, the goddess of virtue. The week before battle, Palamon goes to pray at the Temple of Venus, and he is given a sign that he will win in the tournament. Arcity goes to the Temple of Mars, and is given the same promise. Emily, however, goes to the Temple of Diana and asks that she remain a virgin for her entire life. Unfortunately, she's given the sign. <laughs> Diana's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Diana's like, that is not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, she's oh, like, no. Yeah, no, like, they're very outright, like, not like, oh, I'm so sorry, but that's not the way that it's going to work. No. You know, they're, they're, yeah, no, they're just, like, tough. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think you are? Me? No. The morning of the battle, the two armies enter and are very evenly matched. The battle is fierce, but in the end, Arcity holds a sword to Palamon's throat and he's forced to yield. Arcity has won Emily's hand in marriage. Bullshit. They're supposed to fight to the death. <laughs> Nobody gets it now. Fuck well, off. Now, up on Mount Olympus, Venus is actually really fucking bummed that her guy lost. She starts crying and her husband Saturn's there to console her like, Oh, baby, don't worry. I'll kill the other guy if you want. So as Arcity is riding towards the city to collect his prize, you know, a person, Saturn shakes the ground beneath the horse's feet, throwing Arcity from the horse and getting him crushed underneath it. And since he's dead, Palamon is declared the new winner and goes on to live a very happy marriage with Emily. The end. <laughs> as a quick interjection here, I'll just uh, mention that this tale in particular is actually a retelling of Italian author Giovanni Boccaccio's uh, poem. That's why you Giseta. don't spare your friends' lives. But uh, it's immensely shortened. A lot of these stories have varying origins, like uh, Ovid's A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, or sorry, not Ovid's A Thousand and One, but Ovid, comma, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, Virgil. Uh, fuck you. So we can kind of see what Chaucer's influences were for the time period, which is kind of neat, I think. Anyway. Everyone back in the group pilgriming to Canterbury applauds the knight's tale, and the narrator, hoping to continue on the feeling of excitement, 
asks the monk to tell his tale next, but the miller, who's become drunk and belligerent while the knight was telling his story, interjects and says he's got a much more, quote, noble tale to tell instead. And the narrator's like, no, maybe we ought to let the monk go next. I bet he's got a good story or two. But the miller says he's telling his tale, otherwise he's leaving. And everyone's like, no, fine, do your fucking story, whatever. Now the miller starts his tale with a little preamble, saying that because he's drunk, you have to forgive him for any sort of lewdness. Which, I've known people to try and pull that shit, Are and I farts fucking now? hate it. Um, actually, yes. Cool. <laughs> cool Do, have you known people like that, though? That are uh, just like, hey, you can't blame me when I'm drunk. When I, when I drink tequila, it's this or that. Or no, whatever. no, I just don't get drunk with them. Have you known those people, though? I mean, not really. Really? Okay, yeah, that's no. good. That's yeah. fucking good. I mean, I don't hang out with those people anymore, but there were people that were like... No, 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 me and the rest of the people I know just apologize afterwards. Like, I've had somebody tell me, like, hey, when I'm on mushrooms, I apologize for anything I do that's not the real me, and I'm like, I believe that. You know, <laughs> you're on hallucinogens, and uh, uh, these this is some pretty bad shit. But, I mean, yeah, if you if you are... Like just fucking freebasing your tequila throughout the night, and then you're just like, "Uh oh, ah, uh, touch the waitress," and it was like, "You could have stopped that. You could have stopped that from happening." I feel you're like you're venting asshole. about something specific in your life for several people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I am. <laughs> Once again, do you need to talk later? Would you like to not do it on the recorded anyway, podcast? The Miller says, <laughs> "Would you like to do it next to me this later?" Is my therapy. No, shh. This is cheaper. Shh. It's it's not therapy at all. That's not healthy. At all. Do Would I you look like healthy? To do it? No, no, no. Jordan, I propose <laughs> that you let me play your PS5 later, and you just sit next to me, and I pretend to listen to you. How about that? Oh, just like every <laughs> every time you're over. Yeah, that sounds fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, anyway, the Miller says that his tale is one of how a clerk made a fool of a carpenter, and everyone knows immediately that this will be a tale of how a clerk fucked a carpenter's wife. So someone asks the Miller, hey man, where's your wife? What if she's out fooling around right now, huh? How would you feel about that? And he's like... I offended, I guess, but... He's like, shit, I'm not her keeper. It's none of my business. And as the Miller begins, the narrator warns the reader that this tale is a little spicy, so if you're prone to discomfort... Please skip this chapter altogether. Look, man, as long as you keep those parts coming, I don't give a damn. No, so I did. I skipped it. Oh. Now the monk's tale begins. No, I'm kidding. The miller's tale begins with an astrology student named Nicholas. Being a student, he finds affordable housing near Oxford University with an old curmudgeonly carpenter named John. And while they don't get along, living at John's place is tolerable because his wife, Allison, is a sexy little 18-year-old. Don't, according to the story. Don't. According to the story. Well, one. I don't feel like that was verbatim, Jordan, <laughs> at all. I feel like you added that in. Actually, this next part is going to be. Hey, well, no one should say that, especially not when they look like the toy collector from the second Toy Story movie. You fucking weirdo. <laughs> Get new material. Well, one day, <laughs> when John leaves. Is that Allison, your new material? What, telling you to get new material? No. Oh, um, calling 18-year-old sexy? Yeah. No, it's something I hope to never have to say again. I don't know who wrote this, but God, it made me uncomfortable. Looking at you, I know you wrote it. I hope whoever wrote it. What? Dude. I'm wearing some... Whoa. Real tight... Don't dig deeper. <laughs> Man. Well, one day, when John leaves Allison and Nicholas alone, the student and the the basically the child woman, they immediately start flirting. When things get real hot and heavy, Nicholas grabs Allison, quote, by the cunt. Oh. 
and she starts screaming for help. Is, so that's a quote. It is. Although the way that he spelled it was in Old English. It was Q-U-E-Y-N-T-E. Quint. Cool. Yeah. Cool. With kind of a Australian flair, I guess. That's a really good way to verify that it was indeed a quote. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Nicholas is so taken aback by her reaction that he begins weeping, not wanting to get into trouble. (laughs) A little fucking incel. (laughs) Just handled this the worst way at every moment. At every possible fucking moment. President said it was fine. Gonna do it. Oh, no. It was bad. Yeah. And Allison... Oh, she takes such pity on poor Nicholas that she just, she agrees to fuck him. So it'll work. See? Everyone listening? This is fiction. This is a work of fiction. (laughs) But they'll never be able to find enough time to do so. So what can they do? However, Nicholas. I don't know. I feel like a guy who would cry after doing some weird shit like that, you know, time would not be. (laughs) Oh, you know that he's got the best plan, too, though. I mean, he is a student of astrology, after all, things that matter. However, Nicholas has a plan. At his say-so, Allison tells her husband, John, that Nicholas has taken ill. And John, wanting a third party to confirm this, has a servant take a look at him, where Nicholas lies totally still in bed, staring at the ceiling. When the servant reports back to John, like, he's like, yep, I knew it. Astrologers are out there looking around at the God's business, and this is what you get. Depending on how you uh, actually kind of interpret this, basically... um, the way some people have interpreted it is that John was saying that Nicholas was looking at the God's genitals essentially and was like, yeah, of course they're going to strike you ill, man. You shouldn't be out there with a telescope looking into their buttholes and stuff. Like, don't do that. Like, <laughs> I mean, honestly. Looking into a God's butthole. <laughs> From the next metal album. <laughs> you found God? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, did I find him. <laughs> When John comes to Nicholas, he grabs John by the arm and tells him, I've been given a vision by God. In a week's time, a flood double the size of the one that afflicted Noah will rinse away the earth. And John, simpleton that he is, is like, oh no, what do we do? And Nicholas tells him to strap three tubs off the edge of the roof of the barn, fill them with rations and an axe. In a week's time, he... John and Allison will get in the three tubs, and when the rains come, John can hack away the ropes, tying them to the side of the barn roof, where they'll float on top of the waters and uh, just until the flood subsides. What did yeah. they make tubs out of back then? Uh, metal. Probably. Fuck, I don't know. Yeah. I it, it would probably either be porcelain or metal at this point. I mean, okay. Uh, well, for a farmer, I would say probably a fucking wash tub. It's got to yeah. be fucking metal. Otherwise, I mean, I feel like yeah. that would float. I mean, but with a whole ass person like, in it, and like terrifying. I don't know. I don't feel like it would balance at all. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. You're I mean, you could th- probably last a few minutes if you really tried hard. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, that's weird. The tub's filling with water because the rain's going into it. <laughs> Isn't working well at all. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, John naturally he gets to work right away on the plan. Now, there's a clerk named Absalom that has been in love with Allison for a long time. He's her classic simp. He gives her presents, gives her money, but gets not a crumb of pussy in return. Well, the night of the supposed great flood, Nicholas, Allison, and John climb into the tubs on the side of the barn and wait for the rains to come. And the more they wait, the more tired John gets until he finally falls asleep. Once he starts snoring, 
Allison and Nicholas quickly jump out of their tubs and start fucking back in the house. Well, who should, of course, come by? What are the tubs on the roof at this point? They're, like, hanging off the side of the barn. They were hiding in the tubs on the side of the barn? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't know how they got down safely. I don't know if they climbed up the fucking ropes. I don't know. But either way, the important part is this. They're fucking in the house, and who should come by but Absalom? And like every night, he comes serenading up to Allison's window. And Allison's had enough. She's like, fuck off, Absalom. I love someone else. But Absalom does the regular old, you know, why do girls always go for morons and not nice guys like me kind of thing. And in the pitch black, Allison says, all right, motherfucker, come to the window and pucker up. So Absalom leans forward in the dark and ends up kissing Allison right on her brown star. And he knows something is up because according to him, he feels her pubes on his fucking chin and knows that women don't have beards. It's 2022. This does not sound bad. I don't think they had toilet paper back then. <laughs> I'd be a little offended. Oh, yeah, and their tubs are on the roof, so. We kind of gnar. Wash a. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bad breath, Allison. Well, Nicholas mm, and Allison. That's not clean pennies, that's gutter pennies. <laughs> God, that's gross. That's pennies outside the Greyhound station. <laughs> Look, mommy, a quarter. No, mm-mm, mm-mm. Nope. Mm. Well, Nicholas and Allison are dying of laughter, but Absalom figures he's going to get his revenge. So he goes into town and obtains a red-hot poker from a blacksmith, returning to Allison's house soon after. And he's like, Allison, give me a real kiss this time, and I'll give you a gold ring. So Nicholas gets his turn, and as Allison calls out to Absalom to lean up to the window, Nicholas bears his ass and blows a fart in Absalom's face that's so powerful it almost knocks him off the ladder. Quote, this Nicholas. But you didn't tell me there was like a second story here. Uh, like I didn't know he was on a fucking ladder. I like, didn't know that it mattered. It totally know. matters. <laughs> now this is Animal House. <laughs> the better cut of uh, Animal House, where instead of getting a boner, they all just fart in his face and knock him off. <laughs> Quote: This Nicholas then let fly a fart as great as a thunderclap, so much so that with the stroke, Absalom was almost blinded. Dude got winded so hard he got pink eyed to the last stages in a fucking second. Okay, wait, who's got the hot poker? Absalom. And it's so still he's, he's there. He just he just got farted in the fucking face. Okay. Just a little ghost goof. But Absalom, without <laughs> without haste, sticks that red hot poker right in Nicholas's ass. As he's going down. Yeah. So uh, so of course Nicholas starts shouting, Water! Water! And John, who was asleep in the tub, hears this and quickly cuts the oh, rope Jesus, to do his tub. you think that, like, cauterizes an ass closed? <laughs> like a lightsaber wound? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like a lightsaber wound. God damn it. I don't know. Fucking well? I'm really happy this is fiction now because I you, don't want to find Have you ever out. touched red hot metal? Not with my ass. It cuts through you like butter. I have. I'm very stupid. <laughs> So, John, who was asleep in the tub, he hears uh, Nicholas's call for water, and he quickly cuts the rope to his tub, dropping him several feet and breaking his arm. And among all the commotion, the townspeople show up to see what the hubbub is about. And John, rising from the tub, starts going off on the signs of God's next big flood and looks to Nicholas and Allison for support. But instead, they just call him crazy. And... That's the end of the Miller's Tale. Kind of cuts off right there at the end. There's not really a resolution to anything. Fine. Yeah. 
I mean, we're there for the fart jokes anyway, really. Yeah. And what is actually kind of funny about this tale is that Chaucer does a kind of different writing style for each person telling their story. So it sounds like it's coming from different people, you know. And while the Miller says that this is a quote unquote noble tale like the knights, the story is extremely crass, but it is the most beautifully written told uh beautifully told tale in the entire novel. Like the Miller wasn't kidding. It was a very beautifully told story, but ultimately it is about a man getting sodomized by a hot pipe. Now, there are a lot of tales in the Canterbury Tales, 24 in total, in fact. I'm not going to go over each one of them individually, but I will go over some of the ones that I found the most entertaining. The next tale is told by a woman referred to as the wife of Bath. Bath being a town in England. She begins her tale... Bath or Bath? Bath. Bath. Yeah, it's actually named Bath because that's where they discovered a bunch of Roman baths. Oh, okay. So they literally just called it Tub World. Yeah. Oh. She begins her tale by claiming to be an authority on marriages, having had five of them since the age of 12. And when other people in the group suggest that marriage is supposed to be a secret matrimony and she shouldn't have been married that many times. She also shouldn't have been married at 12. (laughs) I will remind you, 1300s. I agree, but that's like her half-life. Just saying. Old maid. (laughs) She says... That she doesn't Ooh, pay you attention. Are not doing great. This uh, look, man. No, 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 no. <laughs> you are really <laughs> just. just take a mm. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Take a little bit of time to think. Cover it up with a drink. Yeah. Hot in here, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, <laughs> who wrote this? <laughs> yeah, Nicole did. Mm. Well, <laughs> mm, now we're name dropping the. Uh... Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Awesome. So she says that she doesn't pay attention to the part about marriage being, you know sacred and whatnot that should just be like once uh she instead pays attention to the part in the bible where god says to be fruitful and multiply so she's going to multiply every chance she gets you know that would be rad if she wasn't a victim of sexual abuse (laughs) god damn all right fine fair But then she tells the story of her last two husbands. While the first three were considered good by her, the last two were considered bad. The first three she was uh, able to easily manipulate because they were old, rich, and powerful, but they knew that she could easily destroy their reputation, so they just kind of did what she said. Meanwhile, the fourth husband was merely bad because she couldn't make him jealous. When he suddenly dies, the wife of Bath falls in love for the first time in her life. When she watches her soon-to-be fifth husband carry the coffin of her fourth. She doesn't even mind the age difference. Oh, is he not an old dude? Not the... No. Oh. She doesn't even mind the age difference with this new one, as he's only 20 at this point, but she is double his age. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, flipping around. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this last husband of hers really is a bad guy, though. He always... (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Besides the one that married a 12-year-old. I know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) He's bad in different ways. In new ways. (laughs) He always beats her and keeps a book of wicked wives, where each chapter is a different bad woman throughout history. Actually, come to think of it, that's that's the exact opposite of what Chaucer wrote, which was the legend of good women about, you know, fictitious and sometimes real good women. So in this... In this work of fiction, this man is pulling off a, a book from the shelf that is a work of fiction about fictional women being bad. Are you and confused? Then using it as an excuse to beat the the real fictional woman. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to feel about this morally. 
I don't know what meaning to find here. You know, the good thing about the Canterbury Tales, there rarely is a moral, and if there is one, it's probably not for the best to think about it. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> so, just to kind of give himself justification that women should be treated this way is why he keeps this book around. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. The wife gets frustrated at this supposed evidence of bad women and manages to tear entire pages out of the book. Her husband, of course, beats her for it, but she doesn't go down without a fight, punching him in the face while he smacks her over the head, causing her to go deaf in one ear. But by the end of the fight, he's promised her all of his small estates if she'll just pretend to love him. When the rest of the pilgrims on their way to Canterbury think that she's concluded her tale, she says, Oh, no, 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 that's not even my tale. I was just talking about my husband's. Now, <laughs> <laughs> Now, as I mentioned before, help. <laughs> help now. Is he here? Mm, 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 mm. Look behind you. Yeah. <laughs> as I'm <laughs> Why are you blinking like that? <laughs> Do you need something? Why is this chick blinking like that? Because <laughs> he knocked the fucking vision You'd out. Get out of here. Too. You're being weird. <laughs> as I mentioned before, each writing style becomes more apparent in their differing techniques. For the wife of Bath... She's a lot more argumentative than the others with a lot of dialogue in between. For instance, one person will say, well, how come? And another will say, because. And the other guy says, because why? Stuff like that, but in Old English, you know, like a woman. Chaucer saying that. That's why that was his point, not mine. I'm sorry. That was Chaucer. Did I already say this episode would be really bad if people oh, took any it. of this out of context? Oh, thing take the context out of my ass. Um... I, or put it there. I just hope no one does. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I know they if can. Listen that's, to that's, the one where we talk about a literal Nazi. Then, <laughs> which one? William Pierce the third. Is that worse than talking about all the Nazis? That, what other Nazis have we gone over? Actually, you know I mean, what? Don't answer. We've gone that. over. <laughs> that's, I feel like every third episode, like they're a topic. There's a few, yeah. There's a few where they're just like, eh, they were all right, you know. <laughs> no, none like that. At all. <laughs> anyway, she tells the tale of a knight in King Arthur's court. This knight is a bit of a Casanova among his peers. And by that I mean he's a rapist. So rape he does. Against a maiden. And King Arthur's court is scandalized, requesting he be put to death. However, the queen gives the knight a chance at redemption. Quote, You stand, for such is the position still. In no way certain of your life, said she. Yet you shall live if you can answer me. What is the thing that women most desire? Beware the axe and say as I require. In one year's time, the knight must return to the court with the answer to this question. What do women want? They weren't worried he was going to rape anyone else? <laughs> Fair. I mean, like, it's just kind of... Like, I don't... Yeah, I... Yeah. Like, they have a film crew watching him at all times? Like, I don't understand how they're going to keep this in check. I mean, he's a fucking verified rapist. Like, go out and be a good boy! Like, what? You really, you really think that he, uh... He's reformed? Oh, yeah, he's fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, it. they really just gave a rapist the think about what you did. <laughs> That's what that is right there. Well, so, yeah, I mean, they gave him a year to basically put his affairs in order if he can't figure out the... The answer to the question, but he has ordered if he gives the wrong answer or none at all in a year's time, he will be beheaded. But yeah, I mean, if he fucks off and just, you know, rapes as many people as he can in a year's time, you know, that's, that's not better, you know? <laughs> so you're right. I, I don't know. But either way, 
For an entire year, the knight roams the countryside asking every woman he meets what women truly want. You're right. That is a little scary because he bumps into a lot of What do you want? (laughs) But every time – Hey, aren't you the guy that – (laughs) Yes. Every time he asks, he's given a different answer. Some say money. Some say love. Some say a different husband. When a year passes and he writes to the court, he's in complete despair. However, off in the distance, the knight sees a group of young women partying in the woods. So he decides to try one last time to seek the answer to his riddle. I'm sick. Does he get killed by witches? (laughs) I wish. (laughs) But as he approaches the group, they fart on No. (laughs) They slowly disappear. Fart witches. (laughs) And in their place is an old woman. Well, he decides fuck it anyway, and he figures he'll ask her the question anyhow. So he asks her... What do women want? And she says that she knows the answer to his riddle, but she will only tell him if he pledges his life to her. With no other options, the knight agrees. So the knight brings the old hag with him to the courtroom, and it's there that she whispers to him the answer, and he proudly announces, quote, My liege and lady and general, said he, a woman wants the selfsame sovereignty over her husband as over her lover. And master him, he must not be above her. That is your greatest wish, whether you kill or spare me, please yourself. I wait you will. That freaks us out also. Kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Witch! (laughs) (laughs) What he's saying is that the one thing women truly want is is to have control over their men. The women in court. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) again. Yeah, this is is written by an old man. (laughs) The women in court look to each other and quietly agree. This is truly what women want. The knight's life has been spared. But as the knight is ready to leave, the old hag steps forward and implores the queen. Hey, this dumbass said that in exchange for the answer to your riddle, I'll get his servitude. You're the queen. Marry us right here, right now. And the knight's like, what? And he's like, just starts begging this old woman. He's like, about please. to pipe down that hag, brother. <laughs> he's, he's like, please take all of my shit, have my gold, anything. But it doesn't work. The old hag is married to the young knight. And works his dick like a Nantucket sleigh ride all night. As he lies in bed, completely broken, the old hag... Wait, wait, wait. This is part of the story? You didn't just... Yeah. Oh, wow. All right. Yep. The old hag, probably while throwing a tit over her shoulder, asks him, Baby, what's wrong? And he's extremely honest about it. He's like, how can I be happy with a gross old bitch with, like, you? And she's not even phased. She's like, well... Which would you prefer? Happiness was not my concern. (laughs) My happiness? I'm doing great. (laughs) She was like, I could be old, but good and faithful, or I can be young, lecherous and evil. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) God. (laughs) He's not taking mincing any words, this guy. Oh. (laughs) Not every woman is your mom. The knight actually takes a little while to respond, but eventually he tells her, do what you think is right. It turns out that is the correct answer. He's given her what women truly want, control. So with this, the old hag turns into a beautiful, but also good and faithful young woman. And they have a long, happy marriage together. Glad there was a happy ending for the rapist. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what the moral of that one is supposed to be. (laughs) It was not good. It was not good, dude. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> now, a lot of... The, <laughs> a 
a lot of the tales that come about in this book are ones that come from people who are at odds with one another in the group. For instance, when the miller told his tale about a carpenter getting cucked, the next person to do their tale was a carpenter talking about how a miller slept through an orgy involving his wife and daughter in the same room. Shit like that. Well, the next tale I'll tell you is the summoner's tale. And as a little backstory, the summoner had just been, he felt, insulted by the friar. When summoner? He's a wizard. It was an it was an occupation. Bullshit. It went on his dummy. Wizard twos. was never an occupation. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, was <laughs> no wizard. What's a wizard's average gross income? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Three Mountain Dews a day. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Code red. <laughs> so the the summoner had just felt insulted by the friar. When he told his tale, because it was all about uh, morality and, oh, a wizard wouldn't know anything about the morality of God and shit like that. So the summoner tells the story of a friar that goes door to door begging for alms. You know alms, right? It's just – it's handouts, it's basically. Did we go over this already? I don't know. I, <laughs> well, clearly you needed the reminder anyway. So Thank it's you. Alms. Yeah, no, I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. And he knows which families are susceptible to his bullying. So he comes to the home of this one guy named Thomas, and Thomas is ill, but the friar just preaches at him, saying he should pray about it, and then makes his way past, and he orders Thomas's wife to make him a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I know misogyny doesn't need to be a new trigger warning tag, but for this guy, I almost feel... Fucking, I don't know, dude. Like, <laughs> what should we put on... I mean, rape, duh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, that's uh, maybe, 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 we, maybe just, just 1300s and like, out of context. No, I feel like sexual assault posted as a trigger warning is more professional yeah. than rape. I, I, I'm going to get trigger warning. Rape <laughs> is a lot worse than sexual assault. You know no, what I mean? It is when you make it in bold and like all <laughs> caps, but so <laughs> Jesus, the friar says that he's got a lot of work done that day. Glossing over the Bible. He tells him, quote, glossing is a glorious thing. Huh? Uh-huh. You know, because nobody ever really reads the Bible. They just gloss over it, and that was his profession. That's why he was busy all day. He just went through the pages and went, ha-ha, yeah. I thought you were just supposed to nitpick the chapters you really liked. Yeah. Just go through this. And <laughs> there's a lot of shit in here, and whatever speaks to you, that's it. Trimming my beard? No, I like doing that. That's no longer a sin. Ooh, two different kinds of cloth. No, I like that. Um, gay people. Hey, I, I'm not that. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Hmm. And Thomas's wife is like... Gonna be real mad when they found out I'm talking about threesomes. <laughs> <laughs> and Thomas's wife is like, sorry that we're not feeling very well. This sickness actually just killed our son. And the friar's like, oh, I know that. Had a vision. All friars do. We were all talking about it. You want to know why this happened to you? You don't give enough to the church. And Thomas is like... I give plenty to the church. I just split it between you and the other friars. And the friar's like, why? Don't do that. Just give it to me. So Thomas is like, all right, well, I got your alms right here under my chair, but you can only have it if you promise to split it with your other brothers. And friar's like, yeah, 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 deal. And when the friar puts his face under Thomas's seat, Thomas just farts on him. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my favorite fucking part. Of course, the friar is pissed, but for the wrong reasons. He's not sure how he's supposed to split a fart into 12. When he complains... (laughs) 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 When he complains... (laughs) When he complains to a clergyman how he should go about it, 
the guy seriously thinks on it for a while and then tells him that um, that they can tie the friar to a wheel. And then if his brothers all put their noses to each spoke, they can spin him as he farts. <laughs> <laughs> why, why does this sound like a Terrence and Philip episode of South Park? I would like to remind you that while other languages get very serious tales that are like the embodiment of that language, like what Beowulf is to Icelandic or the tale of Genji is to Japanese, the Canterbury Tales is the most important English tale we have. Of course it is. (laughs) I've never been prouder. (laughs) Now, there are more serious stories within the Canterbury Tales, but for the sake of time, I won't really go into any of that. That don't uh, deal with farts or boners. But there are a couple of sick fucking stories, like one about a child who gets his throat slit, uh, but he talks through the voice of God, and he dies <laughs> when a seed is removed from his tongue. It's like, it's, it's I don't know what, but it's a fucking fever dream. It's great. Or three men that go on a quest to kill death. That last one was actually an inspiration to the Deathly Hallows tale from Harry Potter. But anyway, each chapter – or sorry, each character oh, – We should keep Harry Potter off the podcast at all costs. Uh, yeah, I don't give a shit if she at dies. At this point. <laughs> I'm just I'm – not, I'm not covering her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe so, we should. No, fuck her. Yeah, I know, but like, you know. <sighs> no, because honestly, she's got such shitty views, but it's, it's in all honesty just a huge success story. Yeah. And I hate hearing about success stories for yeah, shitty Yeah, and I guess, people. like, even if, like, we went into all the turf stuff, it'd be like, what the fuck are we going to say that everyone is not also knowing yeah, she's, at this point? Yeah, she's very current trend of hatred right now. You know, it's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she votes Tory. She's That's a piece covered. of shit. Whatever. We don't got to go over that. <laughs> the four to eight Caleb can't read enthusiasts <laughs> out there don't need us to. <laughs> like, hey, come on. Give us credit. It's like 12, you know? <laughs> I'm sure. Dude, it might actually be a solid 20 to 30 people. It might be. Hey, who knows? We'll never know. I can find out on the analytics, but I don't want to cry tonight. No, I actually don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdly enough. Well, each character in the Canterbury Tales is admittedly a characterization of an opinion Chaucer has on each class of person. The knight represents his thoughts on the military. Uh, The plowman represents his thoughts on the poor. The monk, friar, and parson are on different classes throughout the church and so on. Uh, which, by the way, he himself was a Christian. He just knew how corrupt the church was and didn't mind speaking out loud about it. And this is going to seem very contrite, but I do think it's important to note that Chaucer specifically says in the beginning that these are his thoughts on these people, not who they are in real life. I know that doesn't seem like a big difference. Look, man, this is just my opinion. Don't get offended by my opinion. Yeah, yeah, but no, here's the thing. Before the Con- the Canterbury Tales, it was a rule that everything narrated was fact before the author's eyes. This small admission that the narrator in our story doesn't really know these people means that this is one of the earliest examples uh, we have of an unreliable narrator. And again, I know you may not care, but this is such an important part of literary history that he did that way ahead of his time, believe it or not. But I would like to point out that as influential as this book is, it wasn't even finished. Because sometime in 1400, Geoffrey Chaucer fucking died from unknown causes. There are 30 members of the pilgrimage in the story, yet we only hear 24 tales. Some stories aren't even finished. Like the Cook's Tale, which cuts off at 58 lines, only having finished the prologue to his story. 
And while a lot of the anecdotes Chaucer put in his book are reworkings from earlier texts by other people, we're not 100% sure on which ones they are because some of those original stories have since been lost to time as well. Plus, the pilgrims don't even get to Canterbury, and there is a possibility that Chaucer intended for them to make a return trip as well. If that was the case, then the book only totals about a third of what it was supposed to be. There are even revisions to the book itself that have been found over the millennia that we have no idea if they were intended to be printed or not. Even the actual order these tales are supposed to be in has been completely lost to time. And because of this, there are several versions of the Canterbury Tales that exist. The one that is uh, commonly referred to as the correct copy is the Ellesmere Manuscript, uh, made probably within only a few decades of Chaucer's death and strangely resides in San Marino, California. I guess the guy who owned the library that it resides in today bought it from the Duke of Ellesmere sometime back in the late 1800s, hence its name. Anyway... The book is what's called an illuminated manuscript, something we went over in our episodes on Walter M. Miller Jr. when talking about a canticle for Leibowitz. Do you remember uh, the illuminated manuscripts at all? No, dude. So basically, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was that was over a year ago, man. Yeah, you're gonna have a tough Jesus time there. Yeah, no, no. It's <laughs> a lot has happened in a year. None of it involving any of this that I remember. <laughs> basically, just it, an illuminated manuscript isn't the. Um, it's not like the original copy of something, but it's something that's uh, drawn up to make it look nicer and probably just sold to somebody who's rich. It's a tourist souvenir, basically, is what it is. So, okay. And actually, this book, the Ellesmere Manuscript, is in immaculate condition. Extremely rare for a book of its age, but is very well maintained. Like, it looks like it was printed not that long ago. However, the Ellesmere Manuscript is not the oldest of the Canterbury documents. The title would actually go to the Hengvert manuscript, probably copied from the original text itself, and even possibly a draft of what would become the Ellesmere manuscript later on, because we know that it was made by the exact same dude, which means that this one guy, if it is the same guy, made a living by copying the Canterbury Tales onto paper for at least 30 years, meaning a lot of people wanted some of this. And the Hengvert manuscript. It's because of the farts. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. Have you seen the fucking drawings that they make in illuminated manuscripts when they get really bored? It's just like monks with huge cocks. <laughs> like it's it's fucking great. There's not a whole lot going on. Like no, it's only they, like they get like, fucking bored and they're sexually like repressed. how many people can we burn like a year like realistically? Yeah. And no, then no, holy shit, it's a drawing of a boner. There's, that would be there's wow. so many fucking dicks. There, like I've seen literally a one that was like. A uh, big erect penis and the balls had feet, and it was just like it looked like a Monty Python sketch. Or Can something. you imagine how overstimulating that would be back in the day? That would be like watching every jackass movie ever made all at once. Like, like, man, do you remember getting a textbook in school and like you know you open it up and like you know everyone's had the same book for years, and so then somebody like writes in pen on the front like turn to page thirteen or whatever, and you like turn to page thirteen and there's like something crass in there, you go. <laughs> Check out what I got. You know? <laughs> that was the first thing that we would do whenever we got our textbooks every year. We'd flip through and see what great art was in there. <laughs> a different experience in the South. <laughs> Books are the devil. <laughs> Turn to page 40. That is a swastika. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> oh. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. I hope it's something silly like a cock. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
oh, good. This is somebody's fucking manifesto in the very <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> the teacher just goes over to you. Hey, I see that you found my manuscript. Like, oh, that's my manifest destiny right there. I do not I want to like talk it. to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Hengvert manuscript, the oldest of the two, had a few more details than the other one. But unfortunately, even those snippets aren't complete. Because over the years, the Hengvert manuscript was kept in far less happy conditions than the Ellesmere one, and several pages have been torn apart by rodents, meaning that we possibly could have gotten more fart jokes, but the rats ate them. That Hopefully to, to fart them out and just complete the legacy of Chaucer. It's so fucking beautiful, man. <laughs> it's really a circle of life, you know? That's, I'm honestly kind of moved. I'm not going to lie. Because we had more fart jokes, but they got eaten by rats. Is the most crusty, punk fucking shit I've heard in a long time. Tonight we fart for Chaucer. (laughs) Uh, Hengvert, Hengvert, by the way, is uh, just the stupid Welsh name that the the rich guy that owned the manuscript named his mansion, and it was named after that. Who the fuck names their mansion? I, I don't know. If you had a mansion, wouldn't you? Why? I don't know. I'll call it Jordan's Mansion. Like, I don't know. It's stupid. I mean, I just call it whatever the address was, but like yeah. back in the day, I don't know if they had like that same kind of grid system going on. So, I guess. I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't know. You know Still stupid. I feel like you've got a bunch system. of land and it's like, hey, do you know where I deliver this this letter to? Yeah, it's that one house up on the hill and that guy rules us. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, anyway, <clears throat> I, I think this is super dorky, but extremely fascinating. This is Castle Ratford. <laughs> <laughs> But researching these manuscripts sent me down a rabbit hole where scholars of medieval text actually have, like, super fandoms for certain scribes. So, like, the scribe behind the Ellesmere manuscript and potentially the Hangvert manuscript was probably a guy named Adam Pinkhurst who worked extremely close to Chaucer, and Chaucer even wrote a poem about the guy, specifically naming him. But most medieval scholars love this guy they categorize as Scribe D., this guy's name is lost to history, but the flourishing in his writing style apparently makes him easily identifiable. He's been said to be, quote, so well known to students of late Middle English manuscripts that he hardly needs an introduction. <laughs> but they don't know his fucking name. Just call him Scribe D? <laughs> yeah. Like when they were going through like one manuscript a long time ago and there were like at least four different scribes writing in it, they had scribe A, B, C, and D. And they were like, holy shit. Holy at shit, the, scribe D. Look at the fucking Should we learn his name? D. No, no, no. Just keep publishing it. I'm getting that money. <laughs> scribe D is fucking hot. <laughs> and and yeah, so his, his handwriting has been hailed as, quote, Anglicana formata at its best. What? Like, I don't know. What but the fuck look, is that? <laughs> typography majors know this dude. They have fucking posters on their wall that just say Scribe D on it. You know, this dude is famous for for a late, late old English, middle English fucking manuscript students. I don't know. Okay. I thought it was weird. No, no, no. It's, I, it's interesting, I guess. I don't... I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny. Well, anyway. Oh, also, we, you know. What? It's low-hanging fruit, but... <laughs> what? Scribe D. What? I, I mean, look, they don't. we don't have a census of these people. No, no, n- n- never mind. It's, it's All fine. Right. Let's All go right. on. You know what? Yeah, yeah. Let's not dwell here. You know... There's been enough farting penis on this episode, and you know what I think we're, we we're, Hey, you can't say it anymore. We're at fucking 599 times saying fart, and we can't... Oh, shit! <laughs> we just hit our cap. You're acting like we have a sponsor <laughs> that puts a cap on such things. We're free. 
Although we know Chaucer died sometime in 1400, the date given on his tombstone is October 25th, but the tombstone was also made a hundred years after his death. So whether they actually got that number from somewhere or they completely made it up, we don't know. He was buried in Westminster Abbey, as was a condition of his contract with the king, until he was exhumed in 1556, transferring his body to the newly built Poet's Corner, where the stained glass window commemorating his work on the abbey sits above him. He was the first interred in the now-famous Poet's Corner and would soon become neighbors with the likes of Tennyson, Dickens, and Kipling. Soon after Geoffrey's death, his son Thomas would prosper politically. He was a Speaker of the House of Commons, a Member of Parliament, and even Chief Butler of England. And while he himself... <laughs> shut up. It's, hey, it's cool, all right? <laughs> Stop making fun of me. <laughs> and while he himself had a daughter of note named Alice, her son was killed during some political upheaval. So while the Chaucer family name was there within the royal confounds for a little bit, the name uh, did die out eventually. The earliest printed edition of the Canterbury Tales that we know of came from English publisher William Caxton around 1476. But between the numerous different orders that people have placed his 24 tales, the book has had numerous editions throughout the hundreds of years that it's been around. Although people like to admire William Shakespeare for his contribution to the English language, I'm of the opinion that we should rather give our thanks to Chaucer. Because before the Canterbury Tales, virtually all books were written in either French or Latin, as it was believed that the English language could not be romanticized. With the popularity of the Canterbury Tales, yes? I'll just, I mean, yeah, but with Shakespeare's rapey? Mm, I mean, some of them, but I mean, you know, all these people just kind of took it in jest, like, you know, women. Uh, you know, it's a thing you that know. happens. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like, not me. God, no. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, they're they're all fucking creepy. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, with the popularity of the Canterbury Tales, the existence of the English novel became widespread. Without Chaucer, we wouldn't have the words he'd invented, such as cunt, fart, bum, knob, meaning dickhead, whoa, 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 slut. Whoa, 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 whoa. The whoa, list whoa. goes on. <laughs> whoa. He, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You want me to repeat those? This dude invented fart. He invented the word fart, cunt, bum, knob, meaning dickhead, and slut. Open with that. (laughs) At one point, he even said about a well-endowed woman, quote, this wench thick. Bullshit! <laughs> Bullshit! No way! No fucking way! This no, you made thing. that up. Nope. <laughs> you made that up, you're making fun Dude, of me, because I, I can't fact check you with this fucking moment. No if fucking I, way. If I had invented it, I would be the king of the English language, but I'm not. <laughs> Chaucer is today correctly hailed as the fodder, father of English literature. Perhaps the farter of English literature as well. My sources today... The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, Penguin Classics, 2003, and Wikipedia. I'm going to be honest, though. I bit off way more than I could chew with this episode. There is I, – I was like, okay, there's like one book that he's like known for. Not a big deal. I have the book. I've read the book. It's fucking fine. Holy shit. This goes deep because he was he was pretty much the prologue to every English novel that comes out bef- like after him. This dude started it. 
He started English literature as a whole, and everything has been referenced like from Chaucer. Every, it's, it's insane. There was way too much information. This could have easily been like its own series. So <sighs> chopped it down a little. <laughs> the Cliff Notes version of Chaucer. <sighs> God bless his fart. You're nose, lying though. about the thickness. I, I'm not lying about You're the You're fucking liar. This one's thick. God bless him. God no. fucking No, you bless fucking him. liar. Why would I lie about that? Because that is clearly a lie. <laughs> it's not a lie. It, no, no, no. You will not have me on this. <laughs> you will not have me believe it. No. No. What do I get if I fact check you and end up being proven right? Um, I won't slap you. Mm. I mean, I guess that's No, 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 no. I won't pink belly you. Oh. Do I get a little pink bellied if I'm proven right? I mean, if that's what you're into, then we're going to have to rethink the punishment. Actually, so I'm going to turn off the lights. And I want you to lean in for a kiss. Um, <laughs> if I'm right, then I will just coldly leave your house. How about that? <laughs> That's damn. It's a win win. <laughs> if I'm right, then I will never uh, call you fat again. How about that? <laughs> Wait, no, no, <laughs> no, please stop. I need this. Oh, God. 